Today, we're looking at substitutionary atonement. We're looking at that through Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. And this passage is going to talk about how is it that God can forgive sins and still be a righteous judge? The righteousness of God, how is it that God can overlook our sins, pass over our sins, forgive our sins, commune with those of us who are sinners, and still be righteous? You understand this. I understand it very well as a parent because I have children. And as a parent, when my children do, do things that are wrong, one of the most complicated things of being a parent is to balance justice and mercy and to be consistent with enforcing rules and to try to make sure that we are, are doing a good job of not trivializing things, but of, of adequately holding to the rules that are consistent. Because if they change all the time, children just get frustrated. You've experienced this. Most of you are not parents at this point, but you have parents and you have experienced the frustration if the rules change all the time. It's, how do I meet the standard? What's going on? You can't change the rules. That's not fair. And in our American society, we have a system of fairness and justice. And if God were merely to pass over sins, it might show his mercy, but it's not going to show us his justice. And somebody could criticize God and say, you're trivializing the things that you say are wrong. How is it that you pass over sin? You show mercy, but that's not justice. You are not a righteous judge. And in this passage today, Paul addresses that argument. In Romans leading up to this passage, he has talked about how we are all sinners We are in rebellion against God. As we are sinners in rebellion against God, there is a punishment that is due. There is a price that has to be paid. And he moves to this section now to talk about how the righteousness of God is going to be shown. And so to summarize this in one sentence, it's too long of a sentence, but I couldn't get any shorter. Today, we're going to talk about at the cross, the justice of God meets the mercy of God, demonstrating the complete righteousness of God, demanding that we give glory to God. Like I said, that sentence is too long. But it's at the cross that this happens. It's at the cross where we realize there is a payment or a price to be paid for sin. And that's where the justice of God meets the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is that God paid the price for us. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place and for our sakes so that we could then see God's complete righteousness. He demonstrated his righteousness as a just judge, but also as a merciful judge coming together to show his complete righteousness in a way that demands that we give glory to God. Because you see, we are sinners. And as sinners in rebellion against our creator, what could God have done to be righteous? He could have punished us and killed us all. He could have sent us all to hell for all eternity. And that would have been just from his perspective. But he didn't. He said, I want a relationship with these creatures that have rebelled against us. And so instead of condemning us all to hell, instead of destroying us all, instead of just wiping us off the face of the earth, God said, I will send my son in his mercy as a payment so that he can be the just judge and the justifier, the merciful justifier of our sin. Both at the same time, it comes together and it shows us the righteousness of God. And that is our text for today. Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? I've got the text for you on the screen, and I'm highlighting a few things there. I'm highlighting that four times in this passage, the righteousness of God is mentioned. Three times in this passage is through faith in Jesus Christ, and then some words that we're going to go through. So look at this as we read this particular text. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Dear Lord, we cannot begin in the time allotted to do justice to this text or to what it tells us about your glorious, gracious salvation. But Father, today may we just catch a glimpse of how much you love us, of how righteous you are, of how much our sin means. Lord, may we grow to love you more and to desire to please you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. So our first point this morning coming out of verse 21 is that the righteousness of God cannot be attained by works under the law. You see it right here. It says, but now. Starts off with but now. Why? Because as I've already mentioned in earlier in Romans, it talks about how we've rebelled against God. We're in sinful rebellion against him. We all have inherited uh, Adam's nature. And so we all are going to sin and we're going to stray from God. And after establishing all this, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, not by the law, but apart from the law. And it has been manifested. What does has been manifested demonstrate to us? It demonstrates to us that it's now revealed to us, not that it was an afterthought of God. This was God's plan all along, was to save and provide salvation in this way, but he is now manifesting his righteousness to us so that it is being revealed so that we can understand how God is the just judge and the justifier both at the same time. It's been manifested, but not by the law. It's been manifested apart from the law. What does the law do? The law shows us that we are sinners because we break it. It shows us that we are in rebellion because we cannot keep it. It shows us that we have a need for grace and that we have a need for a savior. And so it drives us to Jesus because we cannot keep the law. We have a sinful nature that inclines us to rebel against God. And so apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, why do the law and the prophets bear witness to his righteousness? It It shows us his righteous standard. It points us to the need for the coming Savior. All throughout the Old Testament, there is foreshadowing of what is to come. We see it pointing forward, but it does not demonstrate the righteousness of God under the law. It just bears witness to it. Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God, you see it repeated there for the second time, and you see introduced through faith in Christ for the first time. You understand that we obtain our righteousness, not by our works, but we obtain our righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here he says that the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, that's our responsibility, to believe in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and to accept his sacrificial atonement for our sins. Here we understand that that demonstrates the righteousness of God. Now, if you are in the Bible department or if you are a Bible student and you're looking at this and you're wondering, does this mean faith in Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus Christ, which is a a controversy that the commentators debate back and forth, I would reference you to Tom Schreiner's work in this area. He does a fabulous job laying out all of the arguments for why this is faith in Jesus Christ and not the faith of Christ. 
And so I would reference you to that. We don't have time to get into the details and some of the controversies in this particular passage today, or we'll miss the main themes. But here it talks about faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and it tells us that there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the verbs in this particular verse, Romans 3.23. We quote it often. But it says here, for all have sinned. That's an aorist tense. It's a past tense. That past tense is something that has ongoing consequences. So a past action of we have all sinned. In that sin, we have been rebelling against God. We are guilty of all of the law, as James would say. And so we have sinned. It's a past action that has ongoing, continuing consequences for our life. We have sinned. But notice as it continues in verse 23, it says we fall short of the glory of God. Falling short here is in the present tense. It indicates to us that we all fall short repeatedly and continually of God's glory. So what this means to all of us today is that every last one of us has sinned in our past and that sin has continuing consequences upon us. But not just that, it's that we continually sin and we continually fall short of the glory of God. Now, when I look at a passage like this that some commentators call the heart of the epistle of Romans, some commentators will even say this is the nugget of the New Testament. This is encapsulating what the entire New Testament is about. And sometimes I want to think it's the gospel message. Isn't it basic? We talk about the gospel all the time. We talk about how God provided a sacrifice through Jesus on the cross and he died for our sins. He rose from the grave. I get it. I know all this. It's the gospel. It's something that we don't need to continue to talk about, right? But then I think about my own life. And I think about how even though I know that, I continue to struggle with sinful temptations and things that pull me away from God. And I continue to need to refocus my mind on what God has done for me so that I will continuously renew my mind so that I love God, so I will present my life as a living sacrifice to God. I continually need that reminder of what the gospel is so that I will live a life that glorifies God. And so is this basic? Yes, it is basic, but is this profound? Yes, this is a profound statement that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross that while we were in rebellion, he loved us in that way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, it transitions. Verse 24, it tells us, and are justified by his grace as a gift. I want to focus on the as a gift and then I'm going to back up and give you some application. We understand we are not saved by works. We are not saved through the law. We are not saved because of what we do. We are saved through faith in Christ Jesus and it is a gift. It is a gift that we receive, but it is a gift. Now, if you're like me, I think most of you probably are. We want to work to earn things. We want to win awards. We want to have accolades. We want to have people say good things about us. We want to earn what we get. But here, what this is telling us is that we can't earn it because we have sinned and we continually fall short. And it is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive this gift. So let's look at some application of what we can look at from these first few verses. The application here is this. Number one, no one can earn favor with God. No one can earn favor with God. If you're here and you think, I'm going to work my way to heaven, I'm going to tip the scales in the balance. You can't do that. This passage tells us we've all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. It's a free gift. You can't earn favor with God. There's a second one here. His plan has now been made manifest. It was never an afterthought, but it was always his original intention. And he communicates that to us here. 
We have all sinned, present tense with continuing consequences, and we fall short, uh, present tense there, we fall short, meaning continually of God's glory, and our hope is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. Application for you there. Moving on quickly to point number two. Point number two is that the righteousness of God is attained by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says there again in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, here you have several theological words that I'm going to provide some quick definitions for you as we walk through this, because I've got a clip that I want to show you, so I'm going to rush through to make sure we get that. First, we see the word justified. What does the word justified mean? Here's a definition for you on the screen. It's an instantaneous legal act of God by which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and then declares us to be righteous in his sight. It's a legal word. It's a word as though a judge in standing in a courtroom were to declare you innocent, and as he declares you innocent, then you are justified. Here we think of this as a legal act of God where he thinks of our sins as forgiven. We have sinned, as Romans 3.23 has told us. We have rebelled against God, and here God justifies us through what Christ did, declaring that we are forgiven and declaring that Christ's righteousness belongs to us. So just as we have discussed Adam's sinful nature being imputed to us, being put onto us, now we have the benefit, if we believe in Jesus Christ by faith, of having Christ's righteousness belonging to us. So it's not that we are then made righteous, we are declared righteous. We are declared to be united with Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness covering us so that he doesn't see our sinfulness and we are declared to be righteous as belonging in Christ. We're declared righteous in God's sight. This verse tells us that it is by this we are justified by his grace as a gift. What does the word grace mean? The word grace means unmerited favor. Some of you have seen the acrostic that says it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul uses the word grace 24 times here in the book of Romans. Grace itself means unmerited favor, which nothing that we do to earn God's favor. It's nothing that we can do to bring good works to what God has offered for us. We can't add to what he's already accomplished on the cross. It is by grace, it is unmerited favor that God has put his son on the cross to provide a way of salvation that we receive that free gift. That free gift, we receive it through grace. And then God declares us righteous. The word also follows in here through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means to redeem or to ransom or to buy back with a price. Immediately in my mind, the Old Testament concepts of the liberation of Israel from Egypt come to mind, the kinsman redeemer, and then Hosea also come to mind. We think back through the Old Testament and see the picture as it foreshadows all the way pointing to Christ. You go back as far as Abraham and Isaac where you have the ram, the flawless lamb caught by the horns that was providing the substitutionary sacrifice with Abraham and Isaac. You fast forward to the children of Israel and you have the Passover where they take the lamb, they take the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorpost. And if the blood of the lamb is not on the doorpost, then it's the firstborn son that has to die in the home that is not covered by the blood. It is God's firstborn son that dies for us to cover us with his blood. It was a foreshadowing. It was a pointing forward. You go to the sacrificial system and you understand that annually sacrifices had to be made. And once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies, but not without blood. 
in that holy of holies, they would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Hebrews tells us that that is no longer needed because Jesus is the ultimate, the better sacrifice, and he has made that sacrifice once for all, for all of us, so that the veil that separated the outer temple from the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom. We now have access to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's teaching us here. We think back to Ruth and to Boaz and the kinsman redeemer, one who would be a close relative, one who would be able to redeem, one who would be willing to redeem. And we see the foreshadowing there of Jesus Christ, who was able to redeem because he was fully God and fully man, who was willing to redeem. He says, I laid down my life. No one takes it from me. One who was able to redeem and he did redeem us. He ransomed us. He, re- he was our kinsman redeemer, the ultimate kinsman redeemer as he paid this price on the cross. You think to Hosea and Gomer, Gomer, the one who had turned into a prostitute and betrayed her husband, and yet the Lord tells Hosea, go and buy her back, buy her back, just as God has bought us back, as we have rebelled against him all throughout the Old Testament, pointing to the fact of the cross and what God was to do for us there on the cross to redeem us and to buy us back. It is a gift. We pay nothing. It's a free gift. God, on the other hand pays the ransom with the blood of Christ. So when we think of salvation and we talk about it as a free gift, let's not trivialize the free gift, but let's remember that we pay nothing. It is a free gift. But God, on the other hand, pays the ransom with the blood of Christ. That's not a cheap gift. That's a very costly gift. Tells us here in our text also that the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation... Now, there's a great discussion and debate that we don't have time to get into over propitiation and expiation, but just because one is in this text doesn't mean that both are not. Let me give you the definitions of those words. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. It takes care of God's wrath all the way to the end of it, and in so doing, God has no longer has wrath for us but it changes it towards favor for us. That is what happened with Jesus Christ on the cross. Our sinful rebellion against God was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross so that God no longer had wrath toward those who would believe in Christ, but he would have favor toward those who would believe in Christ. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Expiation is also there. Expiation is an action that cleanses us from sin. And you'll talk more and more about these in your theology classes. I thought about how to illustrate this. You know, this is a concept that sometimes it's difficult to grasp. So I thought back to one of my favorite movies, The Chronicles of Narnia. I've got about a six minute clip with three scenes spliced together that I want you to look at. And when you look at this, I want you to think about how God paid for our sins through his atonement substitutionary atonement, but there are other views also present. So if you guys have got that clip, go ahead and roll that clip for us now. Now, a couple things I could say there. For those of you that are creative English majors and love creative writing, we need more C.S. Lewis's painting great pictures of the atonement through fiction. And so you've got a lot of work to do in your lifetime. And so do that. For those of you that are producing movies or have good tech ability to do filming and things of that nature and videos, you see what a powerful clip can do in just a few minutes. You've got a lot of work to do representing a biblical worldview and living for Christ in your life. If I had the next hour, I would walk through a slide that I've got here for you of all the different views of the atonement you can look at in that particular clip. 
you could look at some of these like the example theory or the moral influence theory, which talks about how uh, God loved us and was a good example to us. By the way, all of those other theories beside penal substitutionary, I think, are insufficient. I think they catch glimpses of the truth, but they don't do it all justice. You saw in there the uh, ransom theory where the ransom was being paid to the witch for, the, for the, the son of Adam. You saw in there the fish hook or mousetrap theory, which is the one that God used Jesus as a bait in order to tempt Satan in there. In that one, you could argue that the lion was tempting the witch and she didn't understand it properly and caught her in a trick. You see Chris victor there where Christ is victorious, the satisfaction or commercial theory or the governmental theory uh, you could see in there as well according to the law and the laws of nature that were mentioned. But in this, all of these penal substitutionaries, the one I want you to focus on today. So I have a description for you. I have a slide for you here. John Calvin, other reformers held that sin is a violation of God's law and justice. What do I mean when I say penal substitution? God paid the penalty and he was our substitute on the cross. It means that sin is a violation of God's law and God's justice, that Christ's death was a vicarious or substitutionary death, which satisfies God's demand of justice for sin. In addition to be calling penal substitutionary views, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as vicarious atonement. This was the most accepted view among Protestants until the Enlightenment and is central in evangelical thinking. I've got some resources for you there that you could look at. John Stott, The Cross of Christ, Leon Morris, The Cross in the New Testament, J.I. Packer, and The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. You have some, some resources there you could go to if you want to know more about that particular view. The third point that flows from this text is that the righteousness of God is demonstrated when justice meets mercy in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Here it continues on and it talks to us about how this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We understood he had punished certain people of sins, but in all, in all, he had passed over the ultimate penalty for those former sins. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, the just judge, a judge that judges fairly, consistently, and rightly, and also the justifier, the merciful justifier who offered his son, Jesus Christ, and his blood to cover our sins of the one who has faith in Jesus, just and the justifier. This passage shows us that God in his grace paid a price that he did not owe because we owed a price that we could not pay. God in his grace paid a price that he did not owe because we owed a price that we could not pay. I think the song that we sang at the very beginning summed it up really well. So I'm gonna ask the band if they will come on back up here. They have no idea this is coming, so you give them a few minutes, but we're gonna have them come on back up here and we're gonna sing that last song as we close out. My contention to you as I began this morning is the slide that I leave you with. At the cross, the justice of God meets the mercy of God, demonstrating the complete righteousness of God, demanding that we give glory to God. One of the ways that we give glory to God is when we sing praises to his name. So instead of praying and closing us out, I'm going to let them sing that last song. And when they finish singing that, that first song that they sang today, then you'll be dismissed. Y'all can stand this morning. Sing man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, 
whether you are dismissed this morning.